I'm going to talk about the five precepts today. I posted something uh, this morning on Facebook, and, and I got a Facebook response comment saying that, uh, how do you make the right choice? How do you make the right choice? Because with every choice we make, there's going to be a consequence. And even the best intentions can lead to a terrible consequence. So how do we do that? What do we use as a reference point? And I thought to myself, you know, the five precepts is really good. And I found a nice article. And I posted that on my Facebook page, if anybody's curious about that. Modern day uh, precepts in the 21st century. How do you follow them? What do they mean? By five different authors. So, um, so I was thinking, yeah, you know, the, the five precepts are our reference point. They're a way of deciding whether we're going to have a skillful outcome or an unskillful outcome. It's a way of deciding whether we're going to have merit or demerit. Now, you might not think merit and demerit are important at this point in your life. But you know what? As the older you get, the more important it becomes because it's the merit and demerit that follows us to the grave and then is reborn in our next lifetime. That's where we start. With all the merit and demerit of all the lifetimes we've already lived and can't remember, and even this one lifetime that we're now living and probably won't be able to remember very much anyway, we've acquired merit and demerit. And so one of the best ways to avoid demerit is to study the five precepts. Now, let me me explain something that I heard a long time ago. And, and it really stuck with me. Uh, somebody said, um, once you become a layperson, once you accept the five precepts and the three refuges, you are now in the business of merit and demerit. And then if you become a, a, a Dharma teacher like um, Stephen Sabota Nunez, it's bigger business. So instead of one-on-one, it's, it's every time you do something, it's five times better or five times worse. And then you get to be a novice monk, okay? And the novice monk does something or says something, and it's ten times better or ten times worse because of the ordination. And then you get to be a fully ordained monk, and now it's a hundred times better or a hundred times worse, everything you think, say, and do. So we're talking big business. We're talking giant merit and demerit corporations that we've become because we're advancing our way along the path. Now, that should be taken into consideration, uh, and our intention should be taken into consideration, but after taking all that stuff into consideration, we can still screw up we can still get a bunch of demerit. So let's look at the five precepts. And rather than going one to five, let's go five to one, just to make it a little more interesting on this 4th of July. Okay, number five. I will practice not consuming intoxicants. Now, oftentimes at our center, we've just 
tweaked it a bit, and we say, I will practice not taking intoxicants to the point of intoxication. I ain't high, I just been drinking. An old blues song. Okay, so you go, yeah, that's cool. Okay, I, I think I can do that. So maybe instead of having a, a six-pack a day, I'll just have one beer a day, now that I've become an official Buddhist. And maybe after I've been an official Buddhist for a while, I'll just have a beer a week instead of a, a beer a day. And then maybe as I start to understand the concept of skillful and unskillful merit and demerit, delusion and ignorance, maybe then I'll have a beer in social gatherings only, which may occur a few times a year. But the rest of the time, I just, I'll just i just have, you know, uh, a soda, hopefully sugar-free and caffeine-free. But we don't want to go too far. Some people include everything in intoxicants. TV is intoxicating, um, the beach is intoxicating, everything becomes an intoxication. And yeah, it, it can be looked at that way. But basically what we're talking about is drugs and alcohol. Now the drugs are getting harder and harder to avoid. I don't know if you've noticed that, but here in L.A., the city council is working on a bill to make psychedelics legal. And I'm thinking, I thought we got out of the 60s, but now we're going right back in. The psychedelics, they said, could be useful and could be uh, entertaining and could be, you know, I'm going, oh, man. So there are so many different ways to get high. we got chemicals. We've got natural uh, high, you know, like uh, marijuana. We've got beer, we've got whiskey, we've got vodka. Man, we're just, every place we go, there's a chance to become high. What happens if you decide not to get high? How about you have clarity of mind? How about you are less delusional and less ignorant about what's going to happen and what the consequences might be if you do get high? And all you got to do is watch LA TV and see the news and see these people driving like a hundred miles an hour down a city street and running into a tree or worse than that running into somebody's home and you just go wow how could they do that well we seem to have found alcohol containers in the car and that could be the cause besides going a hundred miles an hour yeah there you go so the drugs and the alcohol steal our wisdom we become even more stupid than we were before. And I don't care if you have a Ph.D. or a master's degree. You know what? Enough alcohol will, will negate that, will cancel it. And you'll just be uh, deluded as hell until you sober up. So as a Buddhist, once we take our precepts, as a Buddhist, once we become a Dharma teacher or a novice monk or a monk or, or Zen priest, we want to sort of avoid intoxication because what we're trying to acquire is clarity of mind. And it's a lifetime pursuit. And I know sometimes we're really clear and everything makes perfect sense. And other times, nothing makes any sense at all. And you strive for the meaning of this or the meaning of that. And it's much harder to get meaning when you're high. Okay, so... Try to avoid intoxicants. Try to avoid intoxication. Fifth precept. Fourth precept. 
Speak skillfully. No harsh speech. Gossip or idle chatter. There are so many times no false speech. There are so many times when we are faced with speaking to other people. Now, I like to talk to the cats myself because they listen intently. And they don't have much to say in response. And I always feel good about that. But when I talk to humans, they always seem to have something to say in response. And sometimes I'm expecting the response, and other times I'm surprised by the response. And other times I just have to say, well, you know, human beings are human beings, and that's how that works. So can we get rid of our false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip, and idle chatter? With false speech, it's seems to be prevalent you know i don't know how you feel about getting vaccinated i don't know if there you know i I, once i found out where the hell to get vaccinated i got vaccinated you know i i figure yeah i'm going to be dead soon anyway why any earlier than i have to go but we have this political thing now the anti-vax people and the vax people and we have it's good and then we have it's bad and we have all sorts of reasons why and 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 you're just looking and and then you I like to say to myself, well, what's true? What am I hearing that's true that can give me an idea of what direction to go in? And everybody has good arguments, you know, and and it all sounds true. So we have to determine at a personal level if it's our truth. Can we live with that truth? What are the consequences going to be if that is our truth? And are we willing to accept the consequences if that is our truth? These are all big questions and and hard to come to any relevant answers most of the time. Because it says, well, today I think the truth is, and then tomorrow, well, you know, I think the truth might be this way. And five years from now, man, I think I was wrong for five years. I think the truth is finally this. And then 20 years, you go... Everything changed. There's no truth that I can feel comfortable with. Is it me or is it the truth? Is it what people are saying or is it what I'm hearing? And oftentimes when we hear something, it's not what's being said. And I have so many occasions of saying something and being misunderstood. And I just want to say, no, 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 that's not what I was saying. But you know what? Once it's out into the world and the people have heard it, you're not going to convince them you said anything else. You, they're going to go, yeah, I know. Now you're, now you're trying to take it back. But you know what? You can't take it back once you've spoken. So speaking is a big deal. And we need to be careful in what we say. And we even need to be more careful in how we say it. And, and nobody ever wins an argument. You know, you're going to have two losers who are, are angry and, and that can manifest in many different ways. So if we can follow the Buddha's teachings and speak in a skillful, harmonious way, in a kind way, and oftentimes not say anything at all, because what you're adding to the conversation is not making it better, it's making it worse. And that kind of discernment comes with the practice of the Dharma and meditation. That's the discernment we're all striving for. Can we understand when to shut up and when to speak? And when we do speak, can we do it well? Can we, 
Can we do it in a way that makes people feel better rather than worse? Okay. Number three, no sexual misconduct. Now, if you're a layperson, there's a whole other level. If you're ordained, there's a, another level. And so, but we're going to talk about both levels. And the first level is the, is the layperson and the Dharma teacher and the Zen priest who, on occasion, are married and in relationship and, and living a life in a, quote, normal way. Okay. And a lot of people live in a normal way, and that's why we have 7 billion people walking on this earth, because everybody is sort of like normal, you know. And there's this desire, and there's this craving, and this need for satisfaction, and it drives us, and we're willing to spend all the money we have to satisfy those very strong desires. Okay. And you're not going to get many people t- telling you, you know, don't go that way. You know, it's, it's not worth it. You're going to find some people who are sort of loners, who have found, you know, that being alone or being single is better than being in relationship. You're going to find other people who, who have found that the refuge is, is in, in understanding who you are. You know, so many people are asking themselves, well, who am I? And they need all the other people in their life to confirm or deny who they are so they'll feel better about who they think they are. Okay, well, that's fine. It's good to have feedback. It's good to get ideas from other people about who you are. But oftentimes, they're telling you who they think you are who they think you are, not who you are. And, and if we're lucky enough to find a partner or a mate who can be honest with us and, and share their idea of who they think we are, we might be closer to it than without them, but that still doesn't tell us who we are. Only we can do that. Only we can do that through years of reflection and meditation and contemplation and then finally come to the point in our, in our journey where we say to ourselves, you know, I don't know who I am, but that's okay. Because I'm somebody, people recognize me, it's fine. If I follow the precepts, I won't make anybody feel uncomfortable when they think about me or know about me. And... and and that might be good enough. Maybe we are never going to find out who we are because we're always in a constant state of process, of change, of turning into somebody else. And especially when you get to a certain age and you look in the mirror, that person does not resemble anybody you've ever been before. So you just have to come to the conclusion, hey, there's a new guy looking at me in the mirror now. I wonder who he is, you know? And then 10, 20 years down the line, there's another new guy looking at you in the mirror. And you go, wow, where do they come from? It's the natural aging process, you know? And sometimes we get better internally, but externally, I don't know if we get better. But I don't know if there is a better. I don't know if there is a worse. There's just sort of an is. So, in relationship, it's often let me help you be you. 
well, okay, but I don't know who I am, so I don't know who you're going to help or what you're going to do. And, and, and there you go. So we need to go into relationship and not cause harm and always be kind. And that's the most difficult thing to do in relationship is to be kind all the time. You can be nice, but there's a difference between being nice and being kind. And I posted a wonderful little article on my Facebook page yesterday on the difference between being kind and being nice. So for a Buddhist, we want to go beyond being nice, and we want to be kind. And it's hard in relationship to be kind all the time, because we either have to defend ourselves, or we have to define ourselves, and sometimes we do it in an angry, unskillful way. And this practice of Buddhism will allow us to become more skillful more times. Okay, now we get to the the monks and nuns. Now, you know, there's a reason why uh, they're, they're celibate. And, and the reason is, is they have like a lot of work to do, you know. Uh, the job of the Buddhist monk and nun can be simply to help others understand the Dharma. It's 24-7. The, there's so many people who are interested now, in America especially, about finding out what the Dharma is and how to practice it, that the American monks and nuns, now when I say American, they're English speakers basically born in America, ordained in America, they're rare. They're like little jewels, you know, and, and, and they're rare. And we have a lot of stuff to do. We got, you know, we can't just say, okay, I, I understand this book, I understand that book, you know, I'm doing fine in my own practice, but how's everybody else doing? And, and, and we have to consider that as being an important part of our practice, is encouraging, not telling people what to do, but encouraging them to study the Dharma and practice the Dharma and practice meditation, and, and not telling them it's the best way or the worst way, but allowing them to evolve and understand themselves. So we support them. We're like little cheerleaders, if you will, with pom-poms saying, right on, man, let's practice the Dharma. Because we're going to suffer less than everybody else. And if everybody practices the Dharma, then everybody's going to suffer less. And won't this be a wonderful world if fewer people are suffering? Because I tell you, when I look at the world right now, man, everybody is suffering. And last night, I don't know where you live, but last night it was war zone number three in Koreatown. Because everybody's got professional fireworks that they can just hardly wait to set off all day, all night. And they seem to wait to the most quiet time of the morning, like three o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, it's like dynamite has been set off. And you just go, damn, I didn't know you could buy dynamite. It's just amazing. And tonight's going to be the finale. You know, we're going to have it all night and all morning and da, da, da. And I'm going, oh, God. And if you have cats or dogs, you know how they feel about it. They are not happy campers. So when I digress, so when we talk about monks and nuns, the reason they're celibate is because they uh, aren't supposed to have families. Now, the family is one of the most important structures of any community. Very well. But, but we're sort of on the outside. We're, we, we've decided that maybe 
in every lifetime before this one, I've had a family. So I've been a mother and a father and a daughter and a son, and I've done all that. And now, in this lifetime, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to see what it's like to be a monastic, to see what it's like to work on myself and help others and, and have a higher goal in mind. No, I shouldn't say higher. Have a different goal in mind besides raising the family, raising myself, and eventually transcending myself through my practice of the Dharma. Okay, so that's fine. And at any time, at any time, you are allowed to give back your ordination and have a family. They're, they're not saying you can't do it. What they're saying is while you're ordained, you can't do it. But give back that ordination and go to Las Vegas and have a wonderful time. It's fine. You know, and, and a lot of people do. A lot of people do. A lot of people find the right partner and decide that that's going to be better than being ordained as a monastic. And you can't argue with that. It's their choice. It's, it's their karma. And they may have missed an opportunity in this lifetime to, to achieve nirvana or enlightenment. But there are many more lifetimes. And, and if they're happier, if they think they will be happier, then they'll be very unhappy not doing it. So I, I've, I've met a lot of monks and nuns, Americans and, and, and Asians, who, who just decided to give it back and, and have a regular life and have a regular family and, and live like a normal human being. Fine. So when you're ordained, you don't. When you're not ordained, you be skillful and kind. And, and, and we need more children in the world anyway. I'm getting a little nervous with 7 billion. Maybe 8 billion would be more comfortable. So we'll see how that goes. Okay. We're now to the second precept, which is not to take what is not given. And I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but there are a lot of catalytic converters being stolen from cars every day. And to replace a catalytic converter is $1,000 because they have these really important minerals and stuff inside the catalytic converter that makes the air a little cleaner. And, and you go, wow. And, and they go underneath your car with a, with a saw, and they saw that sucker off. And here in Koreatown, every once in a while, you hear one of the cars without the catalytic converter or muffler. And it's like, man, you know, it's just like the end of the world as they drive by. It's just so loud. So, what's wrong with taking stuff? You know, I mean, nobody really owns anything, do they? You know, the ownership is just one big illusion. The only time we think we own something is when we have a receipt for it and can prove that it's ours rather than theirs. Okay, but what does that receipt do for us? It gives us the illusion of ownership. Now, back in 1975, I had an Opal Manta, only car that I ever bought new, $3,700 out the door from a Buick dealer. Little German car, two-door, four on a floor, had an audio cassette. And I'm going, wow, this is so cool. I finally got the car of my dreams, and I was driving around. And, and when I look back at the specs, it was just, it wasn't much of a car, but for me, sitting in it, it was a wonderful car. So one day I'm going to go to work, 
And, and I go out to get my car, and the side window is broken. And there in the dashboard is a hole where the audio cassette player used to be. And I was in shock. I was studying Buddhism. I was practicing meditation. How could anybody violate my car and take my audio cassette player? And I yelled at my car because it was the only thing that I could yell at. Who owns you, car? Who owns you? And my car said nothing in return. Just sat there silently. My car didn't care who drove it or who was using the audio cassette player, or whether it even had an audio cassette player. My car did not care. The only person that cared was me, because I was making payments on the car. I contacted my insurance company. I said, somebody, you know, broke into my car, and you got my stereo. They said, no problem, we'll be glad to fix it for you. I got it fixed. A week later, later it was stolen again. So from that point on, I just had a hole in my dashboard for the rest of the life of the car. I just never wanted to have it stolen again. I just never wanted to have to go through that that illusion of ownership being shattered in just a moment. Okay, and then I thought to myself, the big picture, we always like to go to the big picture. Well, do I own me? Am I in charge of me? And there's so many other factors that go into being me that I can't say there's one factor that's the most important. So I don't really own myself either. And then, does anybody own themselves? Well, we all have the illusion that we're in charge. But you know we're not. Uh, One big earthquake, one tsunami, one 105 temperature day in Seattle, Washington... And you just go, man, I'm not in charge of this. You know, I got to get myself an air conditioner. I can't take it anymore. So, so we start adding things to, to who we are and what we're doing. And then when we have enough things, we're afraid that somebody's going to take our things. So we get insurance for all the things that we've acquired to be who we are. And then if we're really lucky, we'll be right on the top of the hill with a fence all around and we'll have cameras 24-7. So we'll have all our stuff all the time and nobody will be able to take it. And we're going to feel so powerful and good. But then we don't pay our taxes and IRS comes and takes our stuff and sells it. So there you go. So, So when it comes to taking stuff... What we got to do is honor the fact that people think they own stuff. They have receipts, they're delusional, they're ignorant. We got to honor that and maybe even compliment them on all the nice stuff that they have. But we don't want to have stuff envy either. We don't want to say to ourselves, man, I wish I had all that stuff because think how good my life would be. But you know, your life is only good because of the inside, <clears throat> not because of the outside. So we got to keep focusing on the inside. What makes my life good inside out, not outside in? And sometimes the less stuff we have, the better our life is. We have less things to think about, less things to ensure, less things to dust, less things to take care of. You know, and, and after a while, when you get in your 60s and 70s and even later, you look at the stuff that you haven't touched for 10 years, and you say to yourself, why am I, why am I hoarding all this stuff? Why am I coveting it? Why don't I just let it go, let other people enjoy my stuff? You know, because it really wasn't my stuff in the first place.
So we got eBay, we got Amazon, used store, we got all sorts of things. Or, radical concept, you can just give your stuff away. I know that's not what we do. We want to charge and make money on our stuff. But, you know, sometimes just giving your stuff away, you get more merit and less money. And the merit's going to go with you to the next lifetime. The money's got to stay here. And that family that you love, cherish, and want to hold on to will be fighting over every dollar. You know? <laughs> every, everything you've ever owned. They want it too. Okay, so, so lighten up. Understand that everything is temporary, especially the stuff, and even you. And don't get too attached to it. You can always get a newer and better model later if you want. Or maybe you don't want. And then you'll have even more freedom than you do today. Okay, now we come to not killing. This is a tough one. Because, you know, it's easy to kill. Uh, You know, if you get a, a wasp or a bee in your room or your house, you know, you can kill it. That's one way to get rid of it. But you can also catch it and take it outdoors. That's another way to get rid of it. And... And in doing that, which takes time, of course, and a lot of us are so busy we don't have the time to, to save a life, then, then we have to you know, think about the consequences. Is this, is this killing demerit or merit? And, and I've been really lucky that uh, this meditation center, ever since I moved in, which was 1993, has always had animals. You know, And I didn't think too much about the animals then. And, and Doug, the residential manager, was taking care of the animals. And then after a couple of years of taking care of the animals, Doug said, you know, I'm getting tired of taking care of the animals. We had dogs, we had cats, we had fish, we had birds. You know, most life was represented in our backyard. Okay, so we're doing that. And then Doug says, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. And, and Reverend Karuna says, well, Kusla, you know, how do you feel about taking care of the animals? I said, well, okay. I'll do it for a while, you know. And that was like 25 years ago. I'll do it for a while. And so, you know, you start, you know, feeding them and caring for them and flea medicine and taking them to the vet if they're sick. And then if you're lucky, you can find some people to adopt some. We've always had, you know, cats here, and and we've got some kittens right now that are just about at the age where we want to adopt them out and and let find forever homes. We have two nonprofits that are helping us. And, and one of the guys who, who took his five precepts here works for Pasadena Humane Society. So he's helping us too. So you, you get this, and, and I remember reading, I think it was Mahayana, might have been Theravada, but might, maybe Mahayana, it said, you know, even giving a morsel of food to an animal allows you to acquire merit. Allows you to get some merit. Just, just giving a morsel of food to an animal that's hungry. Now, the thing about being hungry is they always are. I thought, how can, wouldn't it be nice if you just feed them a whole lot one day and then feed them the next week? You'd, you'd fill them up for a whole week and then they'd eat again the following week. I think how much easier that would be on your time and your energy and your food sources. But those little guys like to eat every day. And sometimes twice a day, sometimes even more, give them little snacks during the day. It seems to be what they live for. You know, they, they live to eat, they live to sleep, and they live to play. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> that might be good. 
So anyway, I've been doing that, and sometimes during the spring we get more cats, sometimes during the fall we have less cats, we have, and of course there's always that, you know, uh, the older ones die and the younger ones sort of move in, and, and so, so we've got some that are like 10 years old now that were born here, maybe 11, 12 years old that were born here. So I'm getting ready for, you know, one day going out and, and they're gone, but realizing that the 10, 12 years that they've been here, they've been fed every day and they've been loved and petted and, and felt like they had a home. Even though it's a backyard and even though it's, it's Koreatown and, and most people have small dogs and not cats, it's like, okay, you know, and, and what has that done for me? Well, it's, it's allowed me to spend money on cat food, you know, <laughs> and and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I've got extra money. Uh, I, can, I can afford a hundred bucks a month, you know, for cat food, sometimes more. And I have people on Facebook helping me. They they send money and they send cat food as well because they're being kind. And they see at some level, it might not be apparent, but at some level they see that this is a a good way to acquire merit. This is a good way to make their life better through donation not charging not wanting anything in return sometimes they don't even want to be mentioned i oftentimes mention them on my facebook page you know thanks for the donation blah blah because the cats now can eat you know and and some people i don't want my name I, i don't want to do it i want to do it anonymous and i thought back i thought back to making merit you get even more merit if they don't know who's donating you know? So you get, say you get 10 merits for donation and 15 merits if they don't know who the donator is. So I'm going, wow, that's cool. But can we do that? Do, do, Do we have enough selflessness to say to ourselves, okay, it doesn't matter if they know who I am or not. The main thing that matters is that the cats have food or the fish have food or the birds have food. So right now we have no dogs, but we have cats, birds, and fish. And you would think that the cats would go after the birds and fish, but so far that's not necessarily been the case. They're all sort of, you know, in the same environment, and they're all sort of homeless and living here, and and somehow they get fed every day. And I'm usually the somehow they get fed every day. And and that seems to be enough. They don't seem to need to, to kill the other animals. Uh, and and they don't, when it happens, which is rare, they don't eat the animal. They just play with it until it dies, which, you know, I'm thinking, oh, man, that is so sad. But it's their instinct. It's, it's how they live their life. And I, I try to te- teach them the Dharma, but it falls on deaf ears. And maybe seeing the Buddha or seeing the Bodhi tree or seeing the prayer flags allow them to see things in a little different way. Okay, so now we come to being vegetarian. You know, I'm, I'm, I've taken a vow not to take life, and, and I'm not going to, uh, but I, I really like those, you know, In-N-Out burgers with extra onions, and I'm going, man, is it okay to eat those now? You know, what's the deal with that? Well, it sort of works like this. If you're a monk, they tell you that you cannot eat meat if it has been specifically killed for you or you hear the cries of the animal. But if lay people offer you meat, then the karmic consequences fall on them and not you. And when I walk into In-N-Out Burger, 
I thank everybody who's working there and accepting the karmic consequences of making the burgers so I can have one. So I may have a little retribution, you know, there might be a little karma payback because of that, you know, double-double, but not as much as if I had gone out and killed a cow and, and cut it up and fried the meat and put the onion, you know, it just, it's less, it's less. But as you become a Buddhist and you become a Buddhist for longer and longer and longer, you start to see maybe I can go maybe half a week vegetarian and half a week meat, you know? And yesterday I went to the local Thai restaurant and got some, um, got some noodles, Pad Thai noodles. And I said, I would like tofu, please, being the proud guy that I am. And they said, sure. You don't want any meat? No, I want tofu. Okay. And you know what? It tasted good. I still have a little leftover for lunch today. So there are ways around it, or we can eat less meat. In some of the Buddhist countries, what they say is you don't want to eat the big animals, eat the small animals. And then in other Buddhist countries, they say, no, eat the big animals and not the small animals, because you only have to kill two large animals instead of a hundred small animals. So there's all sorts of ways of looking at it. Is any way the right way? The Buddha ate meat. He's, he's the guy we're sort of following. He's the guy that told us what he did. And he ate meat because it was offered. And he said, if these people are offering us food so we can continue to live and teach the Dharma, you need to accept the food with equanimity and balance. You go, okay. So the Buddha ate meat because it was offered to him. But if, the, if there was no meat offered to him, he didn't eat meat. He, 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 didn't, he didn't show preference to what he was eating. I, I remember one time I was at a, a, a forest monastery in Northern California. And, and they had cake. And somebody wanted to cover the cake to get an extra piece. So you can take some of the food in the bowl, cover the cake, and get another piece of cake. But he was found out before he did that, so he didn't get any bad karma, and he only had one piece of cake. So you don't ask for more. You don't ask for seconds. You don't ask for, let me get three of those and none of those. You just accept what's given to you. You eat it with as much equanimity as you can, realizing that the food now has become a medicine to keep you alive. It's not to be enjoyed necessarily, though it's hard not to enjoy food because it smells and tastes a certain way. But it's viewed at as medicine so we can continue our life which is a wonderful way to do it. So when it comes to killing, we want to support life, not take life. We want to feed the hungry. And if you prefer to pray, you pray for the hungry, and then you feed them. <laughs> but you got to feed them. Prayer doesn't feed them. Prayer is good for you, but not for them, in the sense of filling an empty stomach. And you can spend a dollar, you can spend $2. You can set up a little um, um, a budget for feeding the homeless or feeding the hungry. You can set up a budget for feeding cats and dogs. And, and when you get to the end of your budget, then you don't do it anymore until the next week comes. So there are many ways to do this and many ways to acquire merit to have a wonderful rebirth. And when I look at all the little pictures on my screen and I see the old guys, I'm going, hey man, now's the time. Now's the time to start thinking about your merit and thinking about your demerit and how not to get the demerit and how to get the merit.